All right. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back here with you guys. Uh, for those of you who are new here, you probably have no idea who I am. My name is Will Franco, and I am one of the pastors here on staff. And if you are new here, we are so glad that you are here visiting us today. A couple things I would love for you to do. Uh, you probably received a Connect card or it was on your seat when you arrived. We would love for you to fill that out, turn it in at the welcome desk, and receive a gift there from us to you. Also, if you're new here, I would love to get a chance to shake your hand on the way out. I usually stand by the steps in the back, so I would really love just to get a chance to welcome you personally and thank you for visiting us here this morning. Now, the great thing about you visiting us here, if you are new here, is that today we are starting a brand new series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. The Upside Down Kingdom. Here's what we're doing in this series. What we're going to be doing in this series is we are going section by section, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Sermon on the Mount is, it is easily by far the most well-known and most famous discourse ever given in human history. It has never been a message or a speech or a sermon that it has, has been more studied and analyzed and unpacked than the Sermon on the Mount. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks, actually for the next few months, is we are going to go section by section, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who don't know where the Sermon on the Mount is, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament. And the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in, verses, in chapters 5 through 7. So Matthew chapter 5, and we're going all the way through 7 in the next few months. But this morning, we are starting by looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that you see here, I'm going to read it in a second, but one of the things that you see here is that Jesus here is speaking to two audiences. It says in verse 1, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so what you see here is that this sermon in particular, in this series in general, is for two groups of people. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're, you, you fall in one of two categories. Either you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, someone who already knows Jesus. And if that's you, the reason why this sermon has to do with you is because what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the marks and the characteristics that a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus should be displaying. So, so as we go through this list today, you're going to be able to evaluate how you're actually doing in your spiritual walk with Jesus. So that's kind of the first category, the disciples. It's the first group I'm talking to this morning. It's the first group that Jesus is talking to as well. But the other group that might be here this morning, and if you're here, we're so glad you're here because we started Tri Village for people like you, is the people who are in the crowd. And the people who are in the crowd are the people who are considering Christianity. There's the people who are considering being followers of Jesus, but they really don't know what it all entails yet. And so they're kind of on the outside looking in, trying to figure out if this is for them or not. And if that's you, then this is a perfect Sunday for you because as we look through the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, what you're going to see is you're almost going to be able to get a bird's eye view of what Christianity is all about, of what a follower of Jesus actually looks like. So if you're still considering whether you want to take that step of faith or not, then this is a great Sunday for you because you're going to be able to see exactly what Christianity is and whether or not it's an option for you, okay? So those are the two audiences. There's the crowd, there's the disciples. Jesus talks to both, and as a result, I am going to speak to both as well. So we're going to start by looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 12, which is where the Beatitudes are found. Now, think about this. If the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever preached, then the Beatitudes are the most famous part of the most famous sermon, okay? 
This is the most well-known part of the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what I want you to do. We don't usually do this, but I want to try to start getting the habit of doing this a little bit more. I'm going to read, but what I want you to do is I want you to stand up where you are as we read from God's Word. Here's what it says in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at the Beatitudes. We are going to look at Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We're going to look at it under two headings, under two headings, okay? The first thing that we're going to see this morning is we are going to see the marks of a disciple, the marks of a disciple, and then after we look at the marks of a disciple, then we're going to conclude by looking at the model of discipleship. So the marks of discipleship is the first section. That'll be the longer section, if I'm being totally honest and preparing you, right? So we're going to look at the marks of discipleship, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the model of discipleship, okay? So let's begin by looking at the marks of discipleship. Now, the reason why I am naming the first point the marks of discipleship is because what we find in Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is Jesus gives us eight marks, eight characteristics, eight attributes that a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ should be displaying as they walk with him. And so what we're going to do in this first point is we're going to go through each one of these eight marks and unpack what it actually looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a, a member of the kingdom of God, right? So the first mark, and you can put this passage up, comes from verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the things that I want to make very clear here is these verses can almost come off like they're a bunch of Proverbs, right? You, so any of you who've read the book of Proverbs before, it's like these pithy little one-liners that you can tweet, right? They're very tweetable. And the Beatitudes, if you're not careful, can actually be misconstrued as a, just a group of Proverbs. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus isn't just giving us a random group of Proverbs. What he's actually doing is he's painting a portrait for us. He's trying to paint a picture of what a disciple actually looks like. And he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. What the heck does that mean? The first word I need to unpack, because we're going to see it again and again, is the word blessed or blessed. What, what does it mean to be blessed, right? In our culture, people say, I'm, I'm, I'm too blessed to be stressed. But they're usually talking about money, right? We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about a different type of blessed. Here's what the word blessed actually means in the Bible. Some people who study the Proverbs, they, what they do is they say, oh, blessed means happy. 
But blessed is so much more than happy, especially our definition of happy, right? Because happy is such a conditional thing. Happiness, it comes and it goes. It's an emotion that sometimes you have and sometimes you don't. But blessed is very different. It's not an emotion. It is a condition. It is a state of being. And here's what the word blessed, and I love this. The word blessed means someone who is approved or congratulated by God. Someone who is approved of or congratulated by God. So whatever your definition of blessed was before this, and when I use the word blessed, when Jesus uses the word blessed, here's what I want you to think of. An individual or a group of people that have been approved of and or congratulated by God. If you're taking notes, make sure to write that because we're going to come back to that at the end. That's what the word blessed means, right? Then he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, you would think when we see the word poor, we think of material poverty, right? We think of having less things. But he's not talking here about money. He's not talking here about possessions. It actually has nothing to do with your outward condition. It has everything to do with your inward condition. That's why he talks about being poor, not in your bank account, right? But being poor in spirit. That if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to be poor in spirit. Now, now here's the thing. A, a lot of times we can read right past that and we can almost treat all these beatitudes like they're equal. But the reason why they're not equal, the reason why poor in spirit comes first is because admitting that you are poor in spirit is the first step you need to take in order to get into God's kingdom. And what we're going to see as we go through these attributes is that each attribute builds on the one that came before. The reason why poor in spirit is first is because it's only those who can admit they are poor in spirit that can actually enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because the word poor in spirit, what it means, it's someone who can admit that they are spiritually poor, spiritually weak, spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So, so uh, someone who's poor in spirit is someone who can look at you and say, no, no, listen, it looks like I have it all together. But actually, apart from Jesus, I don't have it all together. I am spiritually poor, weak, and bankrupt. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. See, the problem with being poor in spirit, though, is that it goes totally against what our culture tells us to be, right? Our culture tells us you, you, we're like walking resumes. We talked about this a, few week, a couple weeks ago. We're like walking resumes. You, you, you minimize or you just completely overlook the weaknesses and you emphasize the, the strengths. So it's, what, it's called peacocking, right? Feathers are out and, and you look bigger than what you actually are. That's what our culture teaches us. So being poor in spirit makes no sense in the world we live in. Why would we be poor in spirit? Why would I willingly admit that I am spiritually bankrupt? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the, thing. the reason why poor in spirit is, is the first one, and in many ways the most important one, is because that phrase is what separates us from any other religion, from any other religion. And, 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 and I say that about, uh, and some people might be offended here, but I say that about Catholicism. I say that about uh, Islam. I say that about Judaism. It's, this is what separates Christianity from any other religion, evangelical Christianity from any other religion. Because here's what, here's what happens. When you say you are poor in spirit, a religious person can't say they're poor in spirit. And here's what I mean by a religious person. You guys, when you guys think of religious, you might think of positive things. I don't think of positive things. I never use religious, religion in a positive way, okay? A religious person is someone who is trying to work their way to God. 
And any other religion apart from Christianity is a religion trying to work their way to God. But someone who is religious can never admit they're poor in spirit because if you admit that you're poor in spirit, then you can no longer be religious. Because if you're religious, that means you're trying to do something about your situation. But if you admit that you're poor in spirit, you can no longer do anything about your situation. Because now I am admitting that I am weak. Now I am admitting that I am bankrupt. Now I am admitting that there's nothing in the, in the bank account. But a religious person might admit they have debt, but they will never admit that they're destitute. You can't. If you admit that you're destitute, if you admit that you're bankrupt, you cut the legs out from under what you're trying to do. See, because if you're in debt, there's something you can do about it, right? You can call the credit card company and figure something out. But when you're destitute and there's nothing, the only hope is the gospel. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Christianity is the only religion where the only way you can get in is if you admit that you are poor in spirit, is if you admit that you are spiritually weak, is if you admit that you are totally and completely bankrupt. It's the only way it works. But in our culture, the self-help culture, the self-reliant culture, the self-sufficient culture, this makes no sense at all. It just doesn't. So what I want to do is I want to begin with a quote. And for the life of me, I don't remember who the quote is from, but it's the first quote that I have. So we'll go ahead and just put that one up. Uh, D.A. Carson, thank you. So here's what D.A., uh, a Canadian theologian from Trinity Seminary, here's what he says. He says, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. You hear that? So it doesn't mean that you lack courage. It means that you have acknowledged your spiritual bankruptcy. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, race, earned merits, the military zeal and prowess of zealots, or the wealth of, of a Zacchaeus. It is given to the poor, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor, they know they can offer nothing and do not try. They cry for mercy and they alone are heard. That's what poor in spirit means. And if you can't get there, you can't get Jesus. Listen, the only way you can be filled with the gospel is if you can admit and confess the emptiness of your sin. I can't be filled if I don't confess I'm empty. That's what we see here in this definition. Okay? So the first thing we see, the first attribute, the first mark of a disciple is someone who is poor in spirit. Let's look at the next one, verse four. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, here's the thing about of us. When we think of mourning, we almost always think of someone dying right? We think of bereavement. We think of suffering. But that's not the type of mourning that Jesus is describing here, okay? Actually, it includes that type of mourning, but it's much more than that. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. The type of mourning that Jesus is describing here is the mourning that you feel when you see your sin for what it is, okay? He's not talking about mourning where you're at a funeral. He's talking mourning when you're on your knees praying and you realize how sinful and wicked and nasty you are. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about mourning over your sin, either your sin or the sins of somebody, but it's the mourning that you feel over sin. It's the mourning that Jesus felt when he stood over the grave of Lazarus. Jesus wasn't dying because Lazarus was dead because he knew he was about to bring Lazarus back. Jesus was crying because he saw the effects of 
sin. That's the type of mourning we're talking about here. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're experiencing the other type of mourning, this does pertain to you. I'm not trying to minimize that. But, but, but what he's actually emphasizing is the mourning that you have when you understand that you are, you're a sinner. And I want, you, I want you to see that, that it builds off the first one. We said the first one is you are poor in spirit. You, you can admit your spiritual bankruptcy. Part of admitting your spiritual bankruptcy, the only way you can admit your spiritual bankruptcy is if you realize how spiritually bankrupt you are. And the way you do that is by mourning and confessing and, and, and being broken over your sin. So you see, they're connecting with one another. They're connecting. I can't really mourn over my sin when I'm being religious, when I'm trying to fix myself. But once I'm ad I admit that there's nothing in me, that I am spiritually bankrupt, now I can mourn over my sin because I no longer have to cover it up because I'm no longer trying to be my own savior. Okay? Those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. Now here's the thing about evangelical modern day Christianity. The problem with us is the reason why we don't mourn over our sin is because we're so quick to look for the good news that we don't actually take time to, to, to understand how bad the bad news is. We come to church and we're like, just give me the good news, man. Just give me the good news. But listen, the good news doesn't mean anything unless you understand the bad news. That's why mourning is so important. True rejoicing happens after true mourning. But if you've never really mourned, then you're never really going to be that joyful. Look at this quote from John Stott. Look how John Stott puts this. John Stott, by the way, he passed away uh, not too long ago, but man, his commentary is amazing. If you want to study a commentary on Beatitudes or any part of the Sermon Mount, look for John Stott's commentary. He says, I fear, listen to this, that we evangelical Christians... By making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. And here's the thing. If there's a church that makes much of grace, it's Trivilla's church, right? We give the gospel every week. But one of the things that could happen if you don't take the time to really understand who we were apart from Christ, in your desire to make much of grace, you can actually make light of sin. But the only way you can rejoice in the good news is if you've actually taken the time to mourn over the bad news. That's what John Stott is saying, and that's what we have to do. So ask yourself, when is the last time that your sin brought you to tears? When, when is the last time that, that your sin or someone else's sin brought you to tears? I don't know about you, but if I've ever, if I've ever cried over sin, it's because of what something, someone had, someone, something someone has done to me. It's never something I've done to God. So, so ask yourself, how much do I actually mourn over my sin? The gospel might not mean that much to you because sin doesn't mean that much to you. You don't see the problem, and so then you don't go to the solution. Amen. So, let's go to the next attribute. Then he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when we hear the word meek, what we tend to do is we think of a, a wallflower, 
right? We think of a spineless, coward, doormat who gets stepped over. That's what we think of when we think of the word meek. And the reason why we do that is because the world has influenced us more than what we think. We have a worldly definition of what it means to be meek. But here's what meek means. Essentially, here's the definition of meek in the Bible. Someone who's meek is someone who has an accurate understanding, an accurate perception of who they actually are. That's all it is. A meek person is someone who knows who they are in light of God. So it's not a false humility. It's an actual accepting of reality. So to the degree that you are self-aware, to the degree that you can admit, I'm a nobody apart from Jesus, to that same degree you are meek. It's actually similar to poor in spirit, but it's more of a perspective than it is, than it is a position. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, but, but they're very similar. So someone who's meek is someone who can be criticized, is someone who can take feedback, is someone who, who, who can give feedback because the reality is they're not trying to really impress anybody because they know who they are. Meek is a biblical understanding of who you are. That's what a meek person does. And whenever you're around a meek person, there's like this peace about them. Like they're not really trying to impress anybody. But we brought up earlier about the peacock. They're not really trying to peacock. They're not trying to impress anybody because they know who they are and they know who they're not. And as a result, they can trust God in a way that other people can't. That's why being meek is so important. Look how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes meekness. He says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. So, so meekness is a true view of oneself. Have you ever been around someone who doesn't have a true view of themselves? Like they think they're smarter than what they are or they think they're, they're, they're stronger than what they are. It's really awkward. And if you've ever had a teenager in your house, you know what this is like. Or anyone under the age of 12, right? Meekness is you start to grow an understanding of who you actually are in light of the gospel. That's what meekness means. But the problem is the world that we live in, they, 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 what they do is they equate meekness with weakness. And you avoid meekness because you avoid weakness, but if you remember what we said a couple weeks ago when we were looking at 2 Corinthians 12, what, what we discovered is that it's in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. Jesus can't fill us up with his power until we are emptied down to weakness. So meek people can be used by God more than people who aren't meek, more than people who can't admit that they're weak. And for those of you who think that being meek means that you're spineless or a doormat or a coward, you know that's not true because both Jesus and Moses were described as meek and neither of those guys were cowards. They were willing to stand up for the right thing. They were willing to call people out when it was needed and yet they were considered meek people. They were people who were meek. And then what's interesting is as if you go back to the passage, in, in the passage what it says is that the meek will inherit the earth, which is so counterintuitive if you think about it, right? Because what we think is that it's the mighty that will inherit the earth. It's the powerful that will inherit the earth. It's the people who push themselves to the front of the line. They will inherit the earth. But according to scripture, the only way up is down. 
And, and, and the earth that is being described here is not the corner office at your job. It's not that really nice subdivision in, with, with, the, with the great cul-de-sac. The earth that's being described here, the, the word there in Greek is actually will inherit the land. And the land is ultimately heaven. Because even the Jews haven't gotten the land that they were promised. And some people think that they will one day receive the land. Some people think they won't. But what we do know is that we will receive the heavenly land. According to Hebrews 13, God is preparing for us a heavenly city that only the meek will inherit. So it's counterintuitive because you don't think the meek will inherit anything. And yet that's exactly what they're doing here in this passage. So those are the first three. Let's look at the next one, which is blessed, listen to this, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. For they will be filled. Now, out of the, all the ones that I looked at this week, this is probably the one I thought was going to be the least practical one. Like, what does that mean? And yet, the more I studied, what I realized is that it was actually the most practical one. Okay, here's why this is so important. This, this definition of, it says those who hunger and thirst. The, the word there, hunger, it means to crave something. It means to be famished. It is a strong desire. That's what it means. And the word thirst means to be in need of drink. So they, there are very strong Greek words. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you're sitting here, you're like, ah, I don't know if I really hunger and thirst for righteousness. Actually, you're totally wrong. Because every person in here actually hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And here's why. Because the word righteousness, here's what it means. And I was really, I knew this, but I didn't know this. Okay? The word righteousness essentially just means rightness. It means to live up to someone's standard. It means to receive an approval or a, a, a positive verdict. That's what the word righteousness means. So think about the times where you most need righteousness. When you go to a job and you're applying for a job, what you're actually looking for by, by in your desire to get the job is you're looking for them to declare you righteous. You're looking for them to give you a positive verdict. You're looking for them to look at your resume, hear what you have to say, and give you a positive verdict. So what you're doing in that moment is you're actually looking for vocational righteousness. When you go on a date for, with someone for the first time, you're actually looking for romantic righteousness because if righteousness means to be approved of, it means to receive a positive verdict. It means to live up to a, someone's standards. When you go on a first date, you're looking for romantic righteousness so there can be a second date. See? The reality is this, guys. Every single one of us is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The question is, are you pursuing the righteousness that Jesus is describing or are you pursuing a smaller righteousness? Whose righteousness are you actually pursuing? Like who, who, who is the, 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 like what righteousness are you actually trying to live up to? Are you actually trying to obtain? What a lot of us do is we look at biblical righteousness. We really know we can't do it, so we settle for vocational righteousness. As long as my boss approves me, as long as I am a good employee, I'm fine. We struggle for marital, we, we settle for marital righteousness. As long as my spouse approves me or parental righteousness, as long as my children approve of me. So we settle with, 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 with lesser forms of righteousness because deep down we know we can't that righteousness. The other day I was watching this documentary, and for those of you who don't know, my two favorite sports are basketball and soccer. And I am a Lakers fan and I am an Arsenal fan, right? And I was watching a documentary, for those of you who disagree, check your heart, okay? So, so, <laughs> there's sin in your life. Anyway, so, so, so I was watching this documentary um, on Arsenal, and Arsene Wenger was the, the, the coach, the manager of Arsenal for almost 22 years. 
And in it, one of his friends, one of the, the chairmen of the board, he, he talked about this one time, he was talking with Arsene Wenger and he sat down to, with Arsene and he said, hey, what, what's, what's your view of life? And Arsene Wenger said this. He said, my hope is that one day when I stand before God, if there is a heaven, he says, and he asks me, what did you do with your life? He's gonna say, I did to the best of my ability, I tried to win football matches. And the guy was like, literally, the other guy was like, that's it? Like, that's what you're going to tell God, that you tried to win football matches? And he's like, hey, that's really hard to do. <laughs> so, so think about it, think about it, think about this. One, he doesn't even really believe if God exists. He's going to find out one day he does, right? And when he stands before God, he's going to tell God that the righteousness that he pursued was trying to win football matches. And when God says that's it, he's going to say, well, it's really hard to do. As silly and as ridiculous as that comment is, how many of us are doing the exact same thing? We, we really be, we believe the gospel, but in actuality, what we're looking for is marital righteousness or, or, or you know, romantic righteousness or vocational righteousness. And, and what we, the, the, the standard that we actually judge ourselves by is, am I a good spouse? Am I a good parent? Am I a good single? Am I a good worker? Am I a good student? Fill in the blank. Whose righteousness are you actually pursuing? According to Jesus, the verdict that your soul is actually longing for is God's verdict. Not the verdict from your friends or your teacher or your boss or your kids or your, or your potential boyfriend, but the verdict that your soul actually thirsts for and hunger for is the verdict that only God can give you. Once you hear that God approves of you, everything changes. Now I can go to work, I can go to my marriage, I can go anywhere, and I don't need the approval of those people because the, the verdict that my soul needs has already been given. You know what's interesting, and I'm, I know we got a little bit technical here, but where, where it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In, in Greek, there are two forms. There, there, there are different forms that you use in, in, in the language. There's the genitive form, and then there's the accusative form. And you're like, what the heck are we talking about? In Greek, when you use the genitive form, it's when it, the, the word of is usually in it. So when you say, hey, I'm going to offer you a piece of cake, that means that there's a lot of cake and I'm giving you a piece of it. That's the genitive form. You would think that that's the form that Jesus is using here, right? That, that hunger and thirst for some form of righteousness. But it's, not, it's, it's a very unusual case, a usual form that Jesus is using. The accusative case is not of righteousness. It is the righteousness. There's no of there. So it's not like there's a lot of righteousness, types of righteousness, and Jesus, I'm offering you one of them. No, no, no. It's not the genitive case. It's the accusative case. It is the righteousness. In other words, there's only one. There's not multiple ones. There's only one. That's why the accusative case is so important in Greek. And that's why it's such an unusual use because there's not a lot of these. There's a lot of ofs. There's not a lot of these. Jesus is saying, I will give you the righteousness that your soul actually longs for. And once you get that one, it changes everything. Okay? Then he says, listen to the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, here's what's interesting. What, what commentators say about the Beatitudes is that the first four have, are more vertical. They have to do with our relationship with God. The second four are more horizontal. They have to do with our relationship with other people. So once we understand who we are, the first four, then we start to behave how we should, the second four, okay? 
So now in, in, this, in this fifth one, we're going from the vertical to the horizontal. And we know we are because it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. But again, don't, remember what I said earlier. These beatitudes, they build on themselves. So if you don't understand the first four, you're not going to be a merciful person. Listen, the only people who can show mercy are people who have received mercy. And the only people that receive mercy are the people who can admit they're poor in spirit, are the people who've mourned over their sin, are the people who are truly meek, and as a result have looked for righteousness outside of themselves. So if you're looking at your life and you're not really that merciful, it's because you haven't believed one of the first four. You're trying to do something by yourself and in your own strength, and that's why you're not merciful. Because you're like, that, you're like the, 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 the slave that gets forgiven all this money by the king, and then you go out and you can't forgive. You can't show mercy. Why? Because you really don't believe what the king did for you. You really don't think you were that bad. You think that all you needed was a, a, a him to lend you some money, not give you a full pardon. And so the people who aren't merciful are the people who haven't received mercy or don't think they've received mercy. But once I understand who I am, I can't, all I can give you is mercy because that's all God gave me. But I, if I'm being honest, I'm not a very merciful person. I'm very judgmental. I, I look down on people. I'm quick to blame their circumstances on them. Why? Because I don't believe one of the first four. Because I don't understand who I am, then I don't act how I should. So your mercy only comes. You will be merciful to the degree that you have received mercy. Or to the degree that you think you've received mercy. That's how merciful works. Now here's what's interesting about the word merciful. It means to show sympathy to someone in need at a cost to you. Let me, let me, let me go ahead and say that again. So to show mercy is to be moved by sympathy for someone in need at a cost to you. If there's no cost to you, then there's no mercy. That's what it means in the Greek. Now think about this. That's the only way mercy works if you think about it because mercy even costs God something. Think about how many things in Scripture God said, let there be, right? Let there be light. Let there be people. Let there be animals. Let there be night. Let there be day. The one thing in all of Scripture that God couldn't just say, let there be, was mercy. He couldn't say, let there be mercy, because in order for mercy to be given, someone had to die. See? God just say, he couldn't say, let there be forgiveness, let there be mercy. No, no, because mercy requires cost. Mercy requires sacrifice. And in God's case, it required the ultimate sacrifice. And so if we are going to be merciful people, we can't be merciful unless we are willing to pay a cost or pay the price. Merciful, mercy always comes with a price. And if you doubt that in any way, look at the cross. Okay? Then he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, the word... That phrase there, pure in heart, what it means is it's a heart that is solely focused and undivided on God. It is an undivided heart. If you guys remember, like three weeks ago, we looked at James, and he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. In that passage, James says that the people who God does not give wisdom to are the double-minded, the people who are double-souled, the people who kind of trust God but don't really trust God. Like they, they kind of have God on the side in case something happens, but... 
I don't know if I'm going to believe in him fully. God doesn't give wisdom to those kind of people. That's what Jesus is getting at here. When he says pure in heart, what he's talking about is someone who has, who's given God their whole heart, an undivided, unmixed, unduplicitous heart. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, every time you see the phrase pure in heart, it always has to do with idolatry. What's idolatry? Idolatry is when you worship something smaller than Jesus. So you worship money, you worship people, you worship your family, you worship romance. Idolatry is when you worship something smaller than Jesus. In the Old Testament, every time you see the phrase pure in spirit or pure in heart, it always is brought up in the context of idolatry. The only way you can be pure in heart is when you stop worshiping things that are smaller than Jesus and you give Jesus your whole heart. Here's what's interesting about this phrase, though, pure in heart, that it requires, it doesn't say be pure in your head, how you think. It doesn't say be pure in your hands, how you behave, but it says to be pure in heart. So here's what this means. It requires the gospel because you and I can change our head, how we think. You and I can change our hands, how we behave, but only the gospel can change your heart. To be pure in heart, the gospel needs to intercede. Only the gospel can make you pure in heart. That's what we see here. And then it says that the pure in heart see God. So, so I have to be undivided. I have to be fully focused. My whole heart has to be given to God in order for me to see God. In other words, you will see God in your life to the degree that you've given God your whole heart. So you're like, man, I don't really see God right now. I don't see God in my finances. I don't see God in my marriage. I don't see God. And I, I just don't see him. I feel like he's very, very distant. Well, one of the things you can do is work your way back and see how pure in heart you are. What's actually seated on the throne of your heart? Is it Jesus or your bank account? Is it Jesus or your degrees? Is it Jesus or your health? Is it Jesus or your potential boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it Jesus or your education? If you want to know why I'm not seeing God with my eyes and how I think and how I behave, why am I not seeing God? It might be because you have an undivided, you have a divided heart. You are double-minded, unstable in all your ways. That's what pure in heart means. Then the next one is this. Blessed, well, I almost tripped. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But again, guys, I need you to see how these things build on themselves, right? The, the people, the type of peace that, that, that Jesus is describing here, when we think of peace, we have a very low view of peace, right? When we think of peace, we think of the, the absence of conflict. So if we turn on the news and there's no war going on, we're like, we're, we're at peace. But listen, peace is much more than just the absence of, con uh, of conflict. According to the Old Testament, shalom, peace is the, the presence of prosperity. The presence of harmony is what peace actually is. It's not just the absence of something. It is the presence of something else. That's shalom in the Old Testament. Now, when we see peacemakers, we're like, okay, so here's what God's telling me to be. God's calling me to be a peacekeeper. God's not calling you to be a peacekeeper. God's calling you to be a peacemaker. What's the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? A peacekeeper is someone who just doesn't rock the boat. So there's things going on at work that might not be all there, all right, but hey, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm a peacekeeper. 
My, my son or daughter or spouse has to be confronted because of their sin, but I'm not going to confront them because I'm a peacekeeper. There's some issues going on with my family, and it's been going on for months and years, and there's a bunch of conflict, and I haven't asked for forgiveness. I haven't asked for reconciliation. But, but hey, it's okay, it's okay, because I'm a peacekeeper. My job is to preserve peace. That's not what the pastor says. You're not a peacekeeper. You don't maintain the status quo. You are a peacemaker. You don't preserve peace. You pursue peace. See, Jesus was a peacemaker, right? But one of the things that Jesus says is that I came to divide families. When you preach the gospel, it divides. Mother from daughter and mother-in-law from daughter-in-law, which is not that easy, not that, easy, not that hard if we're being honest, right? Like, <laughs> but, but he came to bring a sword. He, he brings, he, he calls out truth. He, bring, he calls out sin and then provides a solution in the gospel, which then brings actual peace. But what a lot of us do is we sacrifice everything on the altar of peace. We sacrifice doctrine. We sacrifice truth. We sacrifice our character because we got to have peace. See, our culture wants peace at all costs. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not peace at all costs. It's a peace that brings disruption, and then after bringing disruption by calling out sin what it is, then it brings peace by the, through the gospel. So ask yourself, am I a keeper of peace or am I a maker of peace? Two very different things. Okay, let's go to the next one, the last one. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now listen, listen, listen. This is probably the most counterintuitive one. It's probably the most unexpected one. Because our culture will never tell you that persecution is a good thing. And yet Jesus says that persecution is a good thing. How is persecution a good thing? Well, it, look at the type of persecution that he's talking about. People persecute you because of righteousness. Listen, listen, listen. Uh, please pay attention. He doesn't say people who persecute you because of your political views. Okay? He's not saying, he doesn't say people who persecute you because you're a jerk on social media. Or people who persecute you because you're super judgmental. Or people who persecute you because you're the neighbor that ignores everybody and, and, and you, you know, you, you're, the, you're the terrible neighbor on the block. He doesn't say people who persecute you because you're a jerk. But people who persecute you because of righteousness. Some of us are being persecuted and it has nothing to do with our faith. We're just really bad Christians who have reduced Christianity down to a political position or a set of rules. And of course, people are going to persecute you because that's what they do to jerks. So if you think you're bearing your cross for Jesus and it's because of your support of a certain candidate, not because of your support of Jesus, don't be letting this passage comfort you because it has nothing to do with you. It is persecution as a result of righteousness. Listen, there will be persecution if you're righteous. Listen, if you're the one person at your job, if you work at a restaurant and you're the one person that actually counts their tips and doesn't hide, doesn't hide the money that was given to them, other coworkers aren't going to like that. If you're the person who doesn't joke around and, and when everyone's talking about well, the, 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 the thing that they just watched or they're telling an inappropriate joke and you're not laughing, other people aren't going to like that. Okay? You're going to be persecuted if you are righteous. But if you're persecuted for anything other than righteousness, 
Don't hang your head on that one. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Okay? The, th- the reason why persecution is good is because persecution, and this, I think this is why this is the last one. Number eight is persecution. Because what persecution does is it reveals if you're actually living out the first seven. If you're persecuted and you fall apart, it's because you're not actually living out the first seven. Okay? You know how when you first get married, for those of you who are married here, you, you, you give your vows, and I will be with you until death do us part, in sickness and in health, and richer or poor. Listen, it's really easy to say that at the altar. But your vows are actually true or not when you actually are richer or poor or you're actually sick. Someone gets Alzheimer's or there's no money in the bank. That's when you actually see if the vows are true. That's what persecution does to your faith. Everything looks great when you're making the vows, but are you actually keeping the vows? If if persecution destroys me, then I'm probably not doing one of the first seven. Because persecution reveals if the vows were actually true. If Jesus is actually your reward. If he's not, persecution will always expose you for who you are. I have this thing I want to read, and then we'll move to the last point. Look at this. This is something that was put together by Ray Ortland. And what he does is he takes the Beatitudes and he flips them. Here's what you don't know. We always think of the Christian Beatitudes, but you might not know this, but the world has a set of Beatitudes as well. And what he does in this blog post is he takes the, the Beatitudes and flips them and it tells us what the world's Beatitudes are. Listen to this. Congratulations to the entitled for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, the carefree for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. And then lastly, congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. Listen, listen. You this morning are either living in light of the first list of Beatitudes or this list of Beatitudes. And for those of you who are like, yeah, well, the reason why I'm doing this is because I'm not really a faith person. No, no, listen. It requires faith to walk both. You know why it requires even more faith to walk this list? Because tell me one person who did this and their life turned out good. So it actually takes more faith to, to walk this list out than the biblical one. Okay? So we've looked at the marks of discipleship. And what I want to do for these last few minutes, I want to look at the model for discipleship, the model. Here's the thing, guys, here's the thing. When you look at the list, if you could go back just to verses one through, one through three, when you look at this list, um, next one, the next slide. When you look at this list, one of the things that happens is you can actually fall into the trap of saying, you know what, I can, I can do this. I, I think I can do this. See, that's the thing about the, the, the Beatitudes. When you look at them from a surface level, they look very doable. They're like, oh, porn spirit, I, I can do that. It's not a big deal. Mourn, I mourn all the time. <laughs> meek, pfft, I'm so meek. <laughs> right? One of, the, one of the things that can happen when you look at this list is you can actually think you can do the list. But here's the thing, and this is why we spend so much time going through them one by one. The deeper you go into the Beatitudes, the higher the bar gets. You're like, oh, when I look at it on the surface level, it looks doable. But when I actually go into it, I can't do this. 
You know, that's why one of the things that most bothers me is when secular people take the Sermon on the Mount and they say, look, 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 I can't believe everything else the Bible says. I can't believe in miracles. I can't believe in the resurrection. I can't believe any of that. You know what we should do? We should take the Sermon on the Mount and just live that out because Jesus was a great moral teacher. And as long as we follow his example, we'll be great. I can't believe the rest of the Bible. Let's just live up to the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the problem with those secular people. They've never actually studied the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, there's this, there's this uh, professor. Her name is Virginia Owen. She's a Christian author. And in one of her books, she tells the story that, so throughout her life, she's taught in different uh, secular universities. And one day, one semester, she decided she wanted to do a project. And she assigned to her non-Christian uh, uh, secular students, she assigned the Sermon on the Mount. She said, I want you to read through the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to study it, go into the original language, and I want you to write an essay on the Sermon on the Mount. And she didn't really know how people were going to respond. Well, if she was being honest, she says she would have expected people to say oh this is great this is a great standard for us to live up to that's what she was expecting people responding to it the way they've always responded to it but here's what she discovered surprisingly the deeper the students went into the sermon on the mount by the time they wrote their papers the majority of them were livid and they're like this is so unrealistic this is so religious who can actually live like this is what people wrote in their papers they were angered and bothered by the high standards that Jesus gives in this passage. See, see, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not an Old Testament person. I'm more of a New Testament person. You know what the problem with the New Testament is? Jesus takes the entire law of Moses and takes it to a whole other level. Jesus says, hey, adultery used to be that you had to sleep with somebody. Now you just got to think about sleeping with somebody. Murder used to be I had to choke someone out. Now I just got to think about choking someone out. So for those of you who are like, oh, I'm not an Old Testament person, I'm a New Testament person. The problem with the New Testament is that the, high, the standards are way higher. And those secular students, they understood it and they were bothered. They're like, who can live this out? Nobody. This is not realistic. Who can do this? And that's the point. Because the deeper you go in, the higher the bar gets. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is clearly drawing and, and, and painting a picture of somebody. But if it's not me, then who? Who can he possibly be describing? And the answer is, he's not describing you, he's not describing me, he's not describing Paul, he's not describing uh, Peter, he's describing himself. Listen, the ultimate disciple is Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about becoming Christ-like. Because the more I become like Jesus, the more I become like the disciple I'm supposed to be. Because this list describes him, not me. Jesus is the person he is the model. That's why the second point is the model. The model of discipleship is Jesus. So here's the thing. If Jesus is the model, then how is that good news for me? I already feel bad about the fact that I can't do it. And now you told me someone does do it. Whoopee for him. But what does that have to do with me? Here's the thing. Jesus is not just our model. He is our motive. He was, he's the one that gives us the motivation to live up to that model. Okay? Here's why. Because there's a difference between our position in Christ and our progress in Christ. Our position in Christ is who we are when we place our faith in Jesus. The Bible says that when you place your faith in Jesus, his righteousness, his perfect living out of these commandments, of these, of these beatitudes, is literally attributed to your account. So when God sees you, if you are in Christ, your position in Christ gives you perfection. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. So because of my position in Christ, I've actually lived out these beatitudes even though I haven't, because I am in him. 
But here's what's beautiful. The more you understand and rest in your, your position in Christ, the more you start to progress in Christ. Okay? So when, here's the thing. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you understand your position in Jesus. Here's what starts to happen. I know that the Beatitudes are true of me because they are true of him. And so the more the Beatitudes become true of me, I'm not becoming someone I'm not. I'm becoming who I actually am, who I am already. Okay? So the Beatitudes is not something that's not true of me. It's already true of me positionally. And now it's becoming true of me progressively, practically, as I walk with Jesus and become like Jesus. But if you don't understand your position, you won't make any progress. So don't, I don't want you to miss the order. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, the blessing comes before the behavior. The behavior doesn't lead the blessing. The blessing leads to behavior. Remember what the blessing is. The blessing is that God has approved of me. God has congratulated me. When I understand that, that's already been given to me. The blessing comes before the behavior. The approval comes before the activity. Am I preaching or what? Are we preaching right now? I feel like is someone, let's, let's go, right? Let's go. Amen, right? Amen. I just want to double check, right? That, that's what that means. Now, now I live out the Beatitudes, and as I become more like the Beatitudes, I become more like Jesus. And as this list describes me more and more, I'm not becoming someone different. I'm becoming who I actually already am. Whew. That'll preach right there. Think about this, guys. The Bible says, one of the things that the Bible teaches is that we become what we behold. So the more I behold the Beatitudes and the person who the Beatitudes describe, the more I become like that person. The Beatitudes is like one of those 3D pictures that you used to be given as a child in class in the scholastic magazines and you look at it and you'll be like, I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't see it. And all of a sudden you saw it. But I was never the kid that saw it. Like I don't know what was wrong with my eyes, but I never saw it. And I was like, I don't see it. <laughs> that was, that was, that's a personal problem. But, you, but, you, but you, you keep looking and all of a sudden you see it and then you cannot unsee it. That's what the Beatitudes is. You look at it and you're like, who is this? Who is this? Oh, it's Jesus. And the more you behold, the more you become. Wow. Wow. So, Jesus, listen, listen. The reason why we can be rich is because Jesus became poor in spirit. The reason why we will be comforted is because Jesus mourned. The reason why we will inherit the earth is because Jesus lost his inheritance. The reason why we will see God is because at the cross, Jesus lost the gaze of his father. Okay? The reason why we will receive mercy is because at the cross, Jesus didn't receive mercy. The reason why we can be peacemakers is because at the cross, Jesus lost his peace. The reason why we can thirst for righteousness spiritually is because Jesus thirsted at the cross physically. To the degree that you understand your position in Christ, to that same degree, you will make progress in Christ. And to the degree that you understand that you are blessed, to that same degree, you will start to behave. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for the fact that this list 
has absolutely nothing to do with us. And even if it did, even if it does, it describes you before it describes us. Lord, I thank you for our position in Christ. Lord, it is our position in Christ that leads to our progress in Christ. Lord, to the degree that we internalize the blessing of the Beatitudes, to that same degree we will externalize the behavior of the Beatitudes. Thank you that this list has nothing to do with us. It doesn't describe us, it describes you. And the more we behold you, the more we will become like you. Help TVC to be a church of disciples. Help us, Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.